You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope that this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. But we're going to do some devil stomping in here today. And, you know, stomping the devil, uh, you know, that could sound just like a, a charismatic term or something, but it's, it's not about really doing any harm to the devil, but it's about doing harm to the lies that the enemy would say to us that would cause us to believe anything that he would say different than what God says. The warfare that's taking place is really... Now, there are principalities and powers and different things that are set over regions. There's, I believe they're set over... Uh, you know, government uh, entities and different things that go on. But the warfare, the real warfare takes place right here. This is where the real warfare takes place because a people that know who their God is are unstoppable. unstoppable. The people who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits, the Word says. And we just need to know who God is and automatically and ultimately the devil just gets defeated as a byproduct of us knowing who God is and us knowing who we are in Him. And so let's look at this verse here together. This is Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12. And in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them day and night, or before our God, day and night has been cast down. Now, let me say something about this verse. This has become uh, much like a life verse for us. Uh, for me, I can say in particular, because um, I love the end of what's going to happen to the enemy. But you have to understand, this is a prophetic picture of what's going to happen. It has not happened yet. The only thing about this verse that has happened and, and is happening is the accuser is accusing the brethren. Now, there's going to come a time when he's going to be cast down and He will be no more. And we thank God through Christ that we have victory over the enemy. But right now, we're living in a time when the enemy is bringing accusation against people. And these are not. this is not new to most of you. You've heard me minister on these things. Many of you have studied these things. You've heard other people te- teach on them. You've got revelation on it yourself. But yet, we still find ourselves living sometimes underneath of the thumb of the words of the accuser. And so we have to remind ourselves of really who we are, and we have been justified. The word justified, you can think of it this way, it means just as if I'd. So even though this thing happened, because of what's been covered, it's just as if I'd. It's just as if you'd never been who the devil is saying that you are. And this word for accuser here, it's talking about someone who is a complainant in a legal system. And so he comes in, the enemy comes in, and he brings accusation against not so much the world, but he brings accusation against us, the believers. And why is he accusing us? He's accusing us because he wants us to believe the accusations that he's making against us. So the court case that's really taking place right now, it's actually already been settled. And the problem is is that so many people uh, didn't receive that a piece of paper and their spiritual mail that says it's done, it's paid for, or they got it, because I can tell you now it came to you, 
by way of the word of the Lord and the voice of God and the Holy Spirit. It has come to you, but you need to open up your piece of mail. And if you read it, it says paid in full. The accuser can no longer rightly accuse you for anything. There was a time before Christ when the enemy could rightly accuse you because you were something that caused you to be in a place of not being in right position. But now through Christ, you are no longer who you used to be. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And because everything has become new, and because of who you are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, Satan, the accuser, no longer has any legal right, and he has absolutely no proof of you being anything other than what God says you are. And the only reason he would ever trip us up is because we would listen and say, you know what, I think that might be true about me. But here's something you have to understand. Your actions, your thoughts, the, some of the, the, the things that you're dealing with are not your identity. They're only an event. The mistake you made, it, it's not your identity. It was an event. It was a thing that happened. Learning to separate that out, those out is paramount. Because if you can see, yeah, I did this thing. Yeah, I said this thing. Yeah, I saw this thing. Yeah, whatever, fill in the blanks. And although that wasn't healthy for me, it doesn't define who I am. I'm defined by who God says that I am. And although the accuser is accusing day and night, and let's go back and pull that verse up. Go back to the first part of that verse and pull it up. It says that, and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Have you ever had times where, <laughs> some of you know what I'm talking about, and it was like, you know, <laughs> things were going good, and then Sunday afternoon, I mean, you felt really good at church. You know, we praised the Lord, and people encouraged you, and you heard a good word, and people loved on you. And then it was like by the time Sunday night came, or a Monday morning came, it was a fight all week long. Because see, this is a bubble here. It's easy to come in here and be encouraged. If you're discouraged when you come in here, man, I don't know what's wrong with you. We need to pray for you. <laughs> this is easy to be encouraged in here, amen? Because people love each other. You get to hear the Word. You get to hear you know, people praising and worshiping the Lord. But it's what, it's what we do with the warfare in here what we do with the, with the legal understanding we have in here that determines what happens from, we'll say, Sunday to Sunday. Because He's always out to accuse us, and if we believe His accusations... Have you ever had anybody accuse you of something before? Like falsely accuse you of something? And it, it just makes you feel so... Even if you didn't do anything wrong, it makes you feel bad. You're like, well, I just, you know... I've been there before many, many times. I've had people falsely accuse me of things. And <laughs> you're going to go into ministry. You're going to have that. You're going to do anything for the Lord. You're going to have that. That's just how the, you know, there's this whole thing about Sanballat who was trying to, and with Nehemiah, he was trying to stop the work of the Lord. And mostly what he was doing is he was accusing Nehemiah of things that were completely not even true. But Nehemiah learned how to do the warfare here to be able to just simply do what God was calling him to do. We have to be like that. We have to be like Nehemiah, know who our God is and know who we are. And so Satan, he is the accuser, and he will find, if you find yourself in the same nasty, vicious, demonic cycles in your mind, and you got to understand something, the enemy can vex 
people that are believers, that are spirit-filled, tongue-talking, word believers, He can vex them if they will believe the lies that He's speaking over them. Because see, the enemy, he doesn't come to just say, oh, you did this thing. It's interesting. He'll lead people into sin or wrong thinking, and then he will accuse them for the sin or the wrong thinking. But his accusations aren't just you did this thing. His accusations are you are this thing. And if you start to identify with labels that are placed on you, it will change how you view yourself. It will change what you believe about yourself. And it will ultimately change the direction of your life. So what he wants us to do is to believe the labels that he's putting on us. But we have to just go back and say, no, it's not so of us. It's not so of us. Did, did I miss the thing? Did I do the wrong thing? Did I think the wrong thing? Did I say it wrong? Did I not walk in love right? Whatever it is. Yeah, you probably did, but it doesn't define who you are. It was an event. It wasn't your identity. Hallelujah. So I want to go to 2 Samuel. I'm going to show you something really powerful here this morning. 2 Samuel, and I feel like this is a little bit of, I'm, I'm taking something that's familiar to us, but giving a fresh take on this. And so 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Hallelujah. And we're going to go to verse 5, and I'm going to show you something. Are you, are you guys alive in here? Okay, all right. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to go to verse 5. And I love this story. I'll just give you a very quick backstory. This is a story, and I'm going to, this is how I believe you actually pronounce it. Um, it's of a guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, how would you like to have that name for, for your life? Hello, my name is Mephibosheth. Nobody would ever get it right. Uh, but it's about, about a guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. And, and, and so it was Saul, Jonathan, and then Mephibosheth. And when Mephibosheth was young, uh, apparently that he fell, he had an accident, something happened, and he became lame and was no longer able to walk. So if you go back and you, you study out the story of uh, David and particularly Jonathan, David made a covenant. Jonathan and David made a covenant with each other, which during those times, it was not uncommon that that the previous line of kings would have been totally, completely annihilated. They would have killed every single one of them. But because of the mercy of David and because of his, his love for his friend Jonathan, he made a covenant that he would bring blessing to his house instead of killing his house. And so there came a time, and, and it's here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where David said, is there anybody left in Saul's house and his lineage that I can show favor, that I can show kindness to? And so the word came to him that there is a, there is a guy named Mephibosheth who is the grandson of Saul. And so let's pick it up from there and read in verse 5. It says, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of uh, Machir, uh, the son of uh, Amiel. These are awesome, aren't they? But listen to this word here. From low debar, this is extremely important. As a matter of fact, I'm going to write this up on this so you can see this, and I'm going to show you what this means here in just a second. So low debar, this is where Saul, excuse me, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came out of, came out of that land, that place. And it says, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will, re will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Somebody say hallelujah. And then in verse 8 it says, Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You talk about a guy that didn't have a very good view of himself. And so it goes on, and it says in verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I, I have given to your a master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Ziba maybe, I don't know. I don't know how to say these things. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth said, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the kings. Now listen to this. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Zebur, Ziba were, were servants of Mephibosheth. And here it is. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. I have to show you this. This is one of the most incredible things. The word Mephibosheth, and I think I spelt it right, but I'm not going to take the time to look. This is an, a, a very important name. Lo Debar means um, it's a place without pasture. So, in other words, a place that is a, a place of pasture is where cattle and sheep and things like that would go to eat, right? So, Mephibosheth came from Lo Debar and he went into the king's house to eat at the king's table. Here's what's so significant to me, is that Mephibosheth, when he sat at the king's table, both of his feet were lame, but they were hidden underneath of the king's table, and he was able to partake all of what the king had, and all of his lameness was hidden. The land is actually, the Lord has actually called us out of the land of Lodabar, a place without pasture, not to just another pasture, but to sit and eat of the king's food that he has for us. And I got news for you, all of your lameness is hidden when you're at the king's table. That'll make you want to have joy, doesn't it? All of your nonsense, all of your mistakes, all of where you missed it, all of how you, you didn't raise your... your kid right, or you didn't talk to your parent right, or the sin that you were in, or whatever it is that you have dealt with or are dealing with currently, when you come and you sit at the king's table because of the king's invitation, all of that stuff is completely hidden. And the Bible says that we are now hidden in Christ. What does that mean? It means that all of the wrong stuff goes away when you're there with him. 
Let me tell you what the name of Phoebesheth means. It's broken up into Mabiosheth. Uh, you guys saw it and you were trying not to laugh. All right, let's, re- let's respell this because this is important. All right. Okay. Someone tell me how to spell it. M-E-P-H-I-B-O-S. S what? There's too many voices speaking. I just can't. I just can't pick it up. Phoebo Bo S H E T H S. Oh yeah. There we go. I got it now. All right. So this is. Thank you all very much. Give yourselves a hand. Uh, this is broken up into two words, and these are two. These are two names. Okay. And these are two names that got put together to give this guy Mephibosheth his name. And here's what his name means. You're going to love this. Bosheth means shame. This might seem like a bad thing to have in your name until you see what the first part means. It means a breaker of. Can we just stand up and just shout to the Lord for a second? I don't even have to say what this means. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that when we come and sit at your table, that you have anointed us to break off shame. Thank you, Lord. You can be seated. So God's called us out of the land of Lodabar or without a place of really eating, and he has anointed us to sit at the king's table And when we do that, it breaks off the shame. I'm going to tell you the number one, the number one tool that the enemy uses against people. It is, it's, I'll say it's a one-two punch, and they're very close together, but they're different. It's shame and it's condemnation. Shame are, are thoughts that bring about feelings, that bring about emotions that are negative. And everybody, everybody in here has experienced shame before. If you're human, you've experienced shame. Condemnation is what the enemy brings, at least he tries to bring legally to us. But when we understand our legal position that we have with the Lord, then we can not only break off the condemnation, but we can also break off the shame because both of those things come from the enemy and they literally do not belong to us. And Mephibosheth had a name that prophetically spoke to what he was able to do through the king, not on his own. You and I don't have the ability on our own to break off shame. The only way we can break off shame and have a clear conscience is by putting faith in the work that Christ did. Because as soon as you move away from faith, you automatically put yourself underneath of the thumb and the words of the accuser. But when you bring yourself underneath of the ruling judgment of the blood of Jesus, He has already judged you right with Him. He's already judged you free. He's already declared you as innocent. You say, well, I'm not really innocent. Your actions don't depict your position. Christ's actions depict your position. It's like a really, really like the the kingdom, the way it works in the kingdom of God is it's like, it's very unfair. Because in the natural we look at somebody who did some crime, and you know, you can look over just across the river. We've got this, is it a maximum security prison, I think? Uh, uh, whatever that place is, Menard. Uh, so you've got all these people that were in there, 
and just assuming that they're all, all truly guilty, they're in there and they're getting the punishment that they deserve because of the crime they committed. So we take this and we look at things spiritually and we say, well, I did these things and so now I deserve this punishment. But the way that the kingdom of God works is it works in unfairness. You didn't deserve what you got, which was right standing, and Jesus didn't deserve what He got, which was your sin and your punishment. And so we're supposed to take that and, and not be like, oh, I'm just so sorry, Jesus, that you, that you had to take my punishment. I mean, it starts there. There's a place of like Mephibosheth whenever he was pulled in, and he humbled himself. When you find people that won't humble themselves, you can't receive anything from the Lord unless you humble yourself. Pride, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Grace for salvation, grace for everything you need from the Lord comes from a place of humility. But once you have humbled, humbled yourself, then pull yourself up and sit at the king's table. Hide all of the inconsistencies and things that are going on in your life and just eat of what the Lord has set before you because it's good. And you don't have to feel bad about it at all. Because the covenant that was made was actually made between two other people and you're the beneficiary of it. Jonathan and David made a covenant that Mephibosheth got to reap the benefits of. God and Jesus made a covenant that you and I get to reap the benefits of. And if truth be told, the biggest reason why the enemy doesn't have anything to hold against you is because it's not about your actions, it's about your previous nature. You and I were born into sin. The Word talks about we, we were sons of disobedience. We were, uh, we were uh, children of the devil, as it's been, play, you know, been said before, and I believe all that. But that was speaking about who we were, not about the actions that we did. So when we're dealing, and I'm not saying that actions don't matter, reaping and sowing are a big deal. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter, but for this message in particular, I'm trying to make a point, is that the enemy, if you are trying to uh, deal with the enemy in the realm of your actions, you will lose. Because no matter how good your actions are, they're never good enough to be at the standard that God has called you to. But when you move over and you move into the realm of the nature that God has made you, the enemy is totally blown out of the water. Because the new nature you have in Christ Jesus has nothing to do with your actions. It has everything to do with the action that Jesus took on the, cry, on the cross to give us that brand new nature for all who would put faith and trust in Him. So now whenever mistakes happen and the enemy says, look at that thing that you did. Anybody ever done something and it's just like, and you're like, anybody ever reeled over something negatively for like a days or even a week or something? Like, oh, well, let's just see, let's see a show of hands. Who's done that in here? You've just been like, I can't believe I did that. Just keep your hands up for a moment. Look around. Everybody look around. Every one of us have done that. I have my hand up too. You know what you do when you're reeling over something that you did wrong? It's good to recognize that you did wrong because if you can recognize it and then repent, you shut down. You shut down the lies and the accusations of the enemy. But if you're taking something and you, quote, repented from it, but then you continue on beating yourself up 
people feel like they have to pay penance. You know, we don't pay penance in this day and age like they did probably years ago. But there were, there were times years ago, and I'm sure it's still true, definitely still true in some cultures where people like walk over broken glass or walk over hot coals or crawl on their hands and knees, you know, naked for a mile or whatever, you know, what crazy stuff that people do. They do that because they feel like they have to do something in order to make themselves right. But the reality is, is that you and I can never do enough to make ourselves right. The only way we can actually be right is to put faith in Christ and He changes our nature. So now the argument that you and I have with the devil that holds up in court is what Jesus did to give us a new nature. And so when we come in court and come into the, to the heaven's legal system and the enemy says, you did this and you did this and you did this. You can stand boldly and say, none of that stuff matters because of what Christ has done and He has freely justified me and I am not those things that you say that I am. Therefore, I cannot be prosecuted in the, the legal system spiritually. You no longer have a hold on me. And if we could just get a hold of that, it'll just, we'll just walk in freedom for the rest of our days. And here's the deal is once you see this, it will cause you to want to run to the Lord and not run away from Him. I've heard people say, well, Pastor, you do that. People, it's a license to live in sin. People have been living in sin without a license for a long time. A license is not going to help them live in sin anymore. The reason people live in sin, you want to know the reason why people live in sin? Here's the reason. is because they don't see themselves the way that the Lord sees them. This is just like the prodigal son. He was out and he was, he was living basically like an animal. He, was, he got to the point where he was sleeping with the pigs. And it says that when he came to himself, he realized that even his father's servants had more favor in the house than what he had outside of the house. And he realized, well, I'm still technically my father's son, so I can go back and I'll at least probably get at least get what the servants got. But indeed, he was very surprised when the father said, let's kill the fatted calf, put a robe on your back and a ring on your finger. He never lost his position, even though he was living like he did. When we come to ourselves and realize our position doesn't change based on our actions, we'll stop living in the mud with the pigs. People live in sin because they see themselves living in, in sin. What you do outwardly is because of how you see yourself inwardly. So you need to stop believing the lies that the enemy would say you are this or you are this or you've struggled with this thing or you've been doing this thing or you've had this attitude or you didn't do this right or you didn't. You need to stop identifying with all of that and go, okay, yeah, there's some things that need to change, but I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus because I've given my life to him. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Man, this is awesome. This is what you call awesome sauce. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you a couple more things here. Are you guys with me? Man, who just gets blessed by this? I just, I love this. I'll just preach this for my sake if nobody else likes it. But I know you guys do. It's really good. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. And this is so good. It says, but God who is rich in mercy. So if you go back and read the first part of, of Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about um, who we once were. And then in verse 4, it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by Christ, by grace, excuse me, with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us 
sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, when you go back and you look at the story that we just read about David and Mephibosheth, he says that, he said, I want to show mercy and I want to show kindness to Saul's lineage. And then what does the next verse say here? It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is talking about in the ages to come, this is talking about not only between now and the end of this life, but it's also talking about in the life, the millennial reign of Christ. Now I'm getting some, some end time things, but the millennial reign of Christ talks about this in Revelation. And then also even after that, into eternity, the Lord is going to show us the exceeding riches of His grace, of His mercy, of His kindness. If you think the Lord, if you've got, you think you have a revelation of how kind the Lord is now, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's more to come. There's more to come. And this is why when Jesus prayed and He said, our, He said, pray in this manner. He said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Name thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it going to be like in heaven? In the ages to come, we're going to have a greater revelation of the kindness of God. But if we pray and seek the Lord, we will get a taste and a glimpse and an increase of the kindness and the goodness of the Lord, even in the age we live at right now. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Somebody shout amen. Colossians chapter 2. I want to read a few verses here that will really help this. So here's the deal, is that remember the first verse that we read out of Revelation where it says that the accuser of the brethren, that he accused them day and night. That's talking about the enemy right now in the time that we're living in, he is bringing accusation. Who can relate that the enemy's brought accusation against you and tried to put labels and things on you that, that God doesn't put on you? So in Colossians chapter 2, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, I don't have time to go in and, and really lay this out, this verse, and teach all of these things, but let me quickly tell you that when you're talking about the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world, the basic principle or principles of the world all derived from the garden. And there's this basic principle that man found themselves uh, in sin, naked and ashamed. Somebody told them they were naked because remember, God says, who told you you were naked? And because of that, man automatically entered into shame. Remember that. It says that they were ashamed and then they hid themselves and they made coverings for themselves, which means they entered into self-effort. When this is talking about the traditions of men, you know what traditions of men do? Traditions of men try to bring people into self-effort for the sake of appeasing whatever God it is that they are serving. Because this isn't just in Christian religious circles. This is also in every world religion that there is. There's always something you have to do in order to be right. And so people that on this side of the cross that don't understand that the cross of Christ 
completely washed away the old nature and now we have a new nature. If they don't really understand that, they still live underneath of the accusation of the enemy telling them that they are something different than what God says they truly are. So this is why religion has... Because I asked the Lord this one time and I've seen different, quote, Christian ministries that they condemn people and they browbeat people and they come against people and they give them all of this list of stuff that if you don't do these things, you're not measuring up or you're not measuring up well enough. That is tradition of man based on a basic principle of the world that people feel shame. The only way you can come out of feeling shamed is to put trust in Christ. You cannot work yourself up enough to come out from underneath of shame. And this is why people, they find themselves in one of two camps. When they come underneath of, of Satan's death cycle, which is shame and condemnation, they will, they will either find themselves doing all the stuff of the world, trying to numb how they feel. If you want to find out really is what the root, as someone who's, who's uh, uh, a drunkard, or I'll just say they drink a lot, uh, you know, they've got um, a drug problem, they're into all kinds of whatever kind of stuff that they're in, you want to find the root of it, why they do that? Now, some of them have become very twisted and become very given over to demonic spirits and they need serious deliverance and whatever, but at the root of it, you will find people that hate themselves and they hate themselves because they feel so much shame because they have either never been born again or they have been born again and haven't come into an understanding of what Christ really says about them or what the Word of God says that has happened to them once they got born again. That's one place that you will find people in Satan's death cycle. They're trying to numb away the way that they feel. And then you find a whole other group of people that they're, that they're self-righteous. They're into doing things to make their conscience feel better so that they can really feel like they're closer to God. But the truth is, is that you can't do enough stuff to become close to God. The only thing you can do is put faith in what Jesus did. That brings you close to God. Because see, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent. And the veil separated the people from the presence of God. And the veil was rent because of what Jesus did, not because of what any other man did. So when people find themselves underneath of the system of Satan, it's either trying to numb it through bad stuff, which usually is bad. It's not bad stuff, it's bad. They're either trying to numb it through bad stuff or they're trying to do enough works to atone for the wrong that they feel that they are. But when you come into a revelation of what Christ has done, it takes you out of the basic principles of the world and it takes you out from underneath of the tradition of men. And now, all of a sudden, you're free. And our job now is to learn how to live as free people. Then it says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Who? Christ. And you, everybody say me, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Why does it say He's the head of all principality and power? Because all of the, the principality and power that has operated on this earth came from Satan. If you go back and you look in verse, uh, well, it's in Ephesians, in verse 2, 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the prince of the power of the air. Who's that speaking of? It's speaking of the enemy. But it says that Jesus here is the head of all principality and power. Why is he saying that? Because what Satan has done is brought sin entered the world, into the world. Everybody was automatically born into sin. 
And this is why people say, why don't I feel like I've done pretty good? Like I, one of the saddest things I do is funerals for people that that say at the end of their life, if I got to minister to them or I got to talk to their family and I didn't know them and they say things like, I lived a pretty good life. I did the best that I could. You would be shocked at how many people that go to church every Sunday morning still say things like that when they get close to their deathbed. It's because they never had a revelation of the fact that you can't do enough to save yourself. If you don't have faith in Christ, it doesn't matter how much good stuff that you've ever done. And so, but it says that Jesus is the head of all, all principality and power. What's that saying? It's saying that the one that came to accuse you and me, he totally is over all of that. And if we are at the top with him, that means that we're over the accuser, Satan. And then it, this goes on here. Let me read this. It says, in, who, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that's using a natural term to, to depict what the Lord has done on the inside of us in our hearts. Buried with Him in baptism. Notice the tense of this. It doesn't say you will be. It says that you were. Buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. The Lord already sees you as holy, as pure, as set apart, as much in Christ right now as you ever will be throughout all eternity. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made us. Everybody say made. Everybody say past tense. Made. Alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now look at this right here. This is where the rubber meets the road. Verse 14. Having wiped out. This means that it was totally blotted out. Having wiped out. And when we think about, especially like, you know, back when we were little, what we mostly learned about what Christ did on the cross is that He forgave you of your sins and they're th thrown as far as the east is from the west. And I agree with all that. I believe that. It's good to teach kids that. And so then when we see things, we just kind of like terms like, you know, wiped out or blotted out. We're like, oh, Jesus forgave us all of our sins and it's just wiped out. That's true, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. My God, this is, I'm going to have to interfere with my writing here. All right. It's not proportionate, but you, you can see I'm not great at writing. Although I write books. Praise God. What a miracle. Uh, all of the things that were, and pull that verse back up there, that were handwriting of requirements that were against us. What were the handwriting of requirements that were against us? It was all of the, and this gets, this gets right next to, to people that have a religious mindset. The law is not for you. It is against you. It was given to reveal sin so that you would turn. This is the reason the law was given. It was given as a tutor. And this is, uh, I think it's Galatians 3, if I'm not mistaken. It was given as a tutor or as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Well, how does it do that? Well, if you find people today that are very pro, like, gotta, gotta have the law, gotta have the law, we just gotta keep the law. They'll take that passage that talks about the law being a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and say, if you do these things, you'll come to Christ. And what does it do? It puts us right back underneath of Satan's death cycle, causing us to perform for God to accept us. 
But the, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to a place to go, I can't do all of this. And God goes, awesome. I'm glad we got that established. You can never do enough to appease me. What I'm looking for is faith. I asked the Lord this one time. This, is a, this was, uh, baffled my mind. It still somewhat baffles my mind. But the first guy, after the law was given, the first guy that broke the law, you know what he did? They picked up, he picked up sticks on the Sabbath. And you know what they did to him? They killed him. And then you move forward a little bit, and here you have King David. And the Bible says that Jesus sits on the throne of David forever. And David committed adultery, and then he committed murder to cover up the adultery. And I, I remember one day I was like, Lord, if anybody should have not been killed, it should have been the guy picking up sticks. If anybody should have been killed, it should have been David. I mean, that was a, that was a heinous thing that he did. And what he did to Uriah, you know, I'm just, it was unbelievable. I'm like, Lord, what is that? He said, the guy that was trying, that, was, that picked up the sticks was justified in his own eyes. Although David was grossly wrong, he was never justified in his own eyes. He knew that it had to be faith in him. Because see, then when Nathan the prophet came and he gave this prophecy and, he, and it was about, you know, this guy having all of these, was it lambs, I think it was, and he said that, you know, then this, then this other man who had all these lambs came and stole the guy who only had one lamb and, and David said something like the Lord avenge him fourfold and Nathan said, you're that man, David. David repented immediately. So the law was given to bring people to a place of knowing that they had to have God. They had to put faith in God for salvation. They could never get it on their own. So all of the handwriting of requirements that, that was here, that, went, that goes on here, that was, it does not look like a triangle. That goes here, you could, one of those things you could say was the law. Now is the law good? It was nailed here. Was the law good? Yeah, the law was good in, in terms of the statutes weren't bad, but trying to be justified by it is. And this is why I don't understand Christians that are trying to become Jews. It's like they, 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 missed, they missed what happened at the cross. You know, what, you know what other things were written that were handwriting of requirements against us? The things that you put on yourself, the things that your mom put on you, the things that your dad put on you, the things that came down your family line that says that you are this, you'll never be anything but this, you'll never come past this, you'll never break out of this, you won't ever amount to anything. All those things that were written, that were said against you, Every one of those things are nailed to the cross. And the Lord says, now, those accusations that are against you, they no longer have any legal weight. They have no legal binding anymore because they've been nailed to the cross. They've been dealt with once and forever. It doesn't matter what label was put on you. If you were a drunkard, if you were a pornographer, if you were a liar, if you were a thief, if you were anything that you could find, in Christ, all of that was put on the cross. And now we have an opportunity to walk away from it and say, no more, Satan. You're not going to call me something that God says that I'm not. So having wiped out, past tense, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having, dis listen to this, having, past tense, disarmed, principalities 
and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. I've shared this before, but this is what this is talking about. This is talking about a thing called the triumphant procession. And during that time, what would, what would happen is that the Romans, whenever, and they were always into conquering, right? Whenever they would conquer a people or a nation, they would go and they would get that king and they would cut off his, his uh, thumbs and his big toes. And they would parade him around. And they would do that because if you don't have toes, you can't run in battle. You can't really even walk. But if you have your big toes in particular, you can't run in battle. And if you don't have a, you ever tried to hold something without, without your thumb? It's nearly impossible. You could never hold a sword in battle again. It was the triumphant procession that the Romans would say, this, here was their king, and now this is what he has been stripped down to, nothing. Did you see the triumphant procession? Because I just spent 40 minutes giving it to you. Satan has been detoed. He's been dethumbed. He doesn't have anything against you. All he is is a guy being drugged behind Jesus' chariot, riding on his white horse, being drugged through the dirt and the mud, screaming things. That's all he's been stripped to. And there's going to come a time when he's going to be cast into hell, and then hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And that is his end but yet we are hidden in Christ and will be in with Him and in Him forever in glory. Look here in Colossians 3, next chapter. Let me read four verses, then we're done. If then you were raised, this is verse 1 of Colossians 3, if then you were raised with Christ, he's saying, if this was true, and it is true, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. See, we, we pull these verses out and we'll say, you know, think about and, and go for the things that are, that are above. The next, the next verse is set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. And although I think there's a great, great thing of like if you're, if you're battling with something, just it's like think about some good things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but what's this verse actually talking about? It's saying stop looking at yourself based on who you were and start looking at yourself in Christ. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Don't let anybody cheat you thinking that you have to do X, Y, Z to be right with God. All you got to do is put faith in Him. Set your mind on things above and, and uh, not on things on the earth. For you, for you died. You did die. If you have been born again, you did die. If you haven't been born again, you haven't given your life to Christ, you didn't die and the old man still lives. But once you get saved, the old man is dead, it's buried and gone. Stop relating to him. He stinketh. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <laughs> we got a better end than what the devil's got. Why would we ever listen to a loser? Why would we ever listen to somebody who has been stripped of all of his power? He has no accusation to bring against you. Do people try to do things to you here on this earth? Yeah, of course. And I think that people that bring accusations, they are of their father, the devil. This doesn't mean that if someone older than you and the Lord comes to you and says, hey, let's work through this thing, that they're of the devil. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that accusations that put labels on you that says that you are this when God says that you are this, those are lies of the enemy and will hold you down and they will not propel you forward. 
If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit overcomerschurchinternational.com.